Hey there, everybody. This is James Lindsay. You're listening to the New Discourses podcast. I am going to tell you a little bit more, I guess, about my new book, Race Marxism, The Truth About Critical Race Theory and Praxis. Recently did a um, kind of introduction to the book podcast. Book came out. Seems to be doing very well. Um, It rocketed up to number 14 as the highest I saw on the Amazon list. Um, Currently somewhere in the 20s. So that's pretty exciting given that I didn't really do any marketing or anything for it. So thank you all for your support. Uh, I don't want to rehash the book in this. I actually want to kind of make a more succinct argument than the book does. The book was this kind of complicated endeavor where I'm writing this thing when people still don't really know what critical race theory is. And so I tried to write it in appealing the onion kind of fashion. And I just want to go straight to the argument about race Marxism um, kind of more directly in this podcast. So think of this as kind of like a, I don't know, and a supplement or whatever to the book Uh that makes the argument, I think, more succinctly that that critical race theory is race Marxism. If you listen to the other podcasts introducing the book, the book starts off by explaining what critical race theory is, then explaining what critical race theory believes, then explaining where critical race theory came from. And we touch on Marx kind of somewhat briefly in the fourth chapter when we're on, you know, like I said, peeling the onion, uh, uncovering where Mark, where where critical race theory actually came from. The the focus of the book is critical race theory, not Marx. And then in chapter five, it talks about how critical race theory operates and what it does. And then chapter six, we talk about things that can be done about it. Well, uh, in this podcast, I want to cut straight kind of to the chase and give you some pictures from Marx, some ideas from Marx, and then show you that those are reproduced virtually identically in critical race theory. So maybe that's what the book should have been. I don't know. But the onion of critical race theory needed to be peeled at any rate. So um, just to kind of start off, one of the things that I mentioned, by the way, early on in race Marxism is that we should think of critical race theory as a belief system. And in fact, Marxism overall is kind of a religion that's rooted in kind of Hegelian dialectic, blah, 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 blah. Uh, don't want to dive into that particularly deeply, but I want to point out, I did not know this when I wrote race Marxism, I, I learned this fairly recently, that the first version of the Communist Manifesto was actually going to be titled, the, the first draft that, that Marx and Engels actually wrote was, was meant to be titled The Communist Confession of Faith. And they decided to change it to the Communist Manifesto because they thought that the calling it a confession of faith when it's supposed to be a super anti-religious program uh, it was a little uh, too uh, on the nose, I guess, for what's really going on. And that is that, that communism is, in fact, or Marxist communism is, in fact, a religion, a crackpot religion. You can go listen to the very long podca- podcast I did here on New Discourses about the theology of Marxism. I, I wish I had realized this fact when I did that podcast, as a matter of fact, even though it's just a short thing to mention. But I, that, I think, it's not really relevant to the argument that I want to make here particularly, but it does underscore the argument that I make throughout race Marxism, which is that, in fact, critical race theory being an extension of Marxism is, in fact, a religious faith that's rooted in racism. And this explains things like the weird behavior of people like Robin DiAngelo, for example, who very clearly has realized 
that there's this race Marxist religion, that racism is bad, and that she's a racist, and she doesn't know how to deal with her nature as a sinner uh, under this faith. And her, her writing, which is very strange and confessional in tone if you read it, and then very, you know, she's projecting her confession onto everybody else and saying that everybody has white fragility and all white people are racist and all these kind of very strange things and giving examples about how racist she actually is in her life. Uh, it's easy to understand what's going on when you realize that she's adopted this race Marxist faith. <laughs> her book could almost be the, the the race Marxist confession of faith and that she is dealing with the fact that she can't live up to the standards of her religion because she's actually got racist issues that she hasn't figured out how to resolve. Possibly because the the, the critical race theory that she's adopted, in fact, gets in the way. <laughs> it's just if I had to guess. Uh, critical race theory actually makes people more racist. It does not make people less racist. But anyway, now more to the point. Um, the point of the episode here is, in fact, to kind of simplify the argument. I don't know how simple it'll be. We'll see. Uh, but to simplify the argument that, that critical race theory is, in fact, race Marxism. I've given various versions of this in about a hundred different lectures I've given around the country at this point. So we'll see how this goes. But what I tend to notice is that it's very eye-opening for people. I see people's faces. I see it. I see the connection happening. And so what I've tried to do is take these kind of disparate talks that I give and organize them uh, to make this podcast. And it, it's very straightforward. It's going to be a few pieces where it's very straightforward where here's Marx, here's critical race theory, cut out this middleman where we have to understand the role of the neo-Marxists and the cultural Marxists and all of this crap. And I'll try to do another work on that later, but I've done a whole bunch of podcasts on it. And of course, what I'd like to tell people is I could start off with these kind of punchy little things. Like, for example, Richard Delgado, who wrote Critical Race Theory and Introduction. What does he say? Well, we know that Marxism is based in dialectical materialism. And we see, for example, that Richard Delgado talks about how the kind of intersectional program progresses piece by piece by piece by piece. And then he ends this with, and so the dialectic progresses. He says, you know, we have say, the plight of, of racial minorities, and then that becomes the plight of the various different racial minorities working out their details, and then it's racial minorities who happen to be women, who happen to be gay, who happen to be disabled, or whatever. And he says, and so the dialectic progresses uh, in terms of kind of unfurling the, the standard of the oppression uh, mindset, the conflict theory, which is Marxist conflict theory. So I could do punchy little things like pointing that out. You know, the dialectic progresses through this kind of intersectional paradigm. In other words, dialectical structuralism as opposed to dialectical materialism is at the heart of what's going on. And that's why they talk about not just material determinism, like Derek Bell, one of the founders of critical race theory, was very uh, interested in, but rather also uh, structural determinism. And this is the idea that the, the structure of society, the way that the structure of society works, um, actually creates... Uh, creates uh, the conditions that create your character. So if you're white, your character is shaped by the fact that you have white privilege. Or if you're bourgeois in Marxism, your character is shaped by the way that you have uh, access to capital. And if you are a racial minority or if you are a working class, your, your character is shaped by the fact that you're having imposed upon you this false view of the world. So we could talk about it that way. We could point out that Delgado, and this is really why I brought him up more than about critical race and introduction, was interviewed a number of years after the publication 
uh, or after the the inception, before the publication of Critical Race Theory and Introduction, this was in the 1990s, that book came out in 2001, um, he, was, he was being interviewed about the 1989 conference in Madison, Wisconsin, where Critical Race Theory was born and named by Kimberly Crenshaw, and he was there. And he explains that they were in this austere room in this convent, he says. We're in this convent off of campus. There's about 30 of them there. He names some names. Kimberly Crenshaw's there. He's there. Neil Gotunda and some other people are there. Uh, Mary Matsuda is there. And he, you know, he names some names and he says, you know, we were there to figure out if we had some things in common, if we could do some work together. And he says, we're in this convent and it's kind of funny. You know, he's in his almost, it's pretty close to his exact words. He says, we're in this austere room with stained glass and crucifixes here and there because it was a convent. And then he adds kind of dashed off or so as a parenthetical aside, he adds an odd setting for a bunch of Marxists. And that's his exact words. So he says that the people creating critical race theory were in fact Marxists. This is, you know, pretty indicting of the fact that this is Marxist theory being repackaged in a new way. Um, but I still see this as a punchy little thing, not a deep thing. Uh, I do mention this in the book, of course. Um, there's also the fact of where, what the, just look at the name, critical race theory, and we can listen to how Kimberly Crenshaw in another interview described how she chose the name critical race theory. And she says that we were critical rate, we were critical theorists who were interested in um, racial justice advocacy, and we were racial justice acti activists who did critical theory. So the name made sense, critical race theory. In other words, a critical theory of race. But if we read, for example, at the very beginning of Isaac Gotsman's book, The Critical Turn in Education, he's very clear that he wants to distinguish between, and I did a podcast on this, I read that section of his book on, on this topic uh, here on the podcast a few episodes ago. It's very clear that the critical theorists should not have been should not be recognized or called critical theorists. They should be called critical Marxists. And what we refer to as neo-Marxism should be actually referred to as critical Marxism because it's using the tools of critical theory as developed by Max Horkheimer to do a new form of Marxism, which characterized kind of the mid-20th century. Really, if we want to put kind of dates on it, 1930 to 1975 or so. That's how Marxism was done for, you know, that roughly 50 year span in the dead center of the 20th century is critical Marxism. And then it took a new turn later, which, you know, we can talk about the identity Marxism. We could actually talk about academic Marxism and we could definitely, and as I, I, I do with race Marxism being one of the flavors, is talk about woke Marxism that it's evolved into as it took on other elements, including stuff from education theory through Paulo Freire and taking on stuff from the postmodern theorists uh, and becoming more interested in constructivism, social constructivism, rather than materialism uh, so much. And so we're now in another generation of Marxism later. But nevertheless, the creator and founder and namer of critical race theory said that it was a critical theory of race, and the people who understand what critical theory is say that it is actually an evolution of an evolution of Marxism as it was understood and thought through and redevised through the center part of the 20th century. And so critical race theory would be better classified as critical race Marxism if we just take the words of Isaac Gotsman directly. Um, so again, punchy little thing. If we do want to talk about the critical Marxists, you know, and I've read this in detail, we can go back to Herbert Marcuse's uh, I get criticized for citing Herbert Marcuse too many times in the book. 
as though um, Harbor Marcuse is not the single most relevant character in this story. And he is. He's more than, than Kimberly Crenshaw. He's more than Derek Bell. He's more than uh, Richard Delgado or any other critical race theorist. We live in Herbert Marcuse's world. And these people figured out the racial component of Herbert Marcuse's world. We live in the critical Marxist Herbert Marcuse's world. It is Herbert Marcuse's critical Marxist theory that defines how our world operates right now. And the attempt of this cultural revolution is his in its second iteration. Its first iteration was in the 1960s. At the very end of them, it failed. He flipped out, wrote Counter-Revolution and Revolt in 1972, seeing his uh, dream slip away. And his identity politics vision actually got brought to, to full fruition through things like gender theory, queer theory, disability studies, fast studies, and critical race theory. But what does he tell us in his essay on liberation in 1969, for example, very clearly, although he's whining about this in his earlier works, he's whining about it in One Dimensional Man in 1964. He's He mentions it in uh, Repressive Tolerance in 1965. Max Horkheimer's talking about it in 1969 uh, as well. They're saying that the working class stabilized, and this is an incredibly important idea. The working class which has always been the thing that Marxists have championed, failed Marxism in their view. They stabilized. They became conservative. They became counter-revolutionary, as a matter of fact. In Marcuse's words, they, as Horkheimer put it, built a better life. And so now you have a completely different outlook on how we're going to to proceed with Marxist theory and what what does Marcuse instruct. Knowing that we live in Marcuse's world, What did Marcuse instruct? Marcuse instructed that we need a new working class, a new proletariat. And he says, we're going to find that in the ghetto populations. And he's talking about the black power movement. He's talking about black nationalism. He's talking about uh, the feminists. He's talking about the sexual minorities, sexual liberation, gay liberation. He's talking about the liberation fronts throughout the third world. He's talking about the unemployed and the radical outsiders like the Weather Underground that was coming into existence, which was a terrorist organization. And these are the people that he's talking about. And these are going to be the new working class. And that new working class is going to be administered to by the students who will be radicalized in the universities, giving rise to the academic left, as Gottsman describes it, which is academic Marxism, which is its goal is to copy what Mao did and to radicalize students so that they'll then go and radicalize other people and make sure that the people who have the biggest chips on their shoulder in society Make sure that those people are going to become activated, radicalized, but also infused with Marxist theory so that their vision becomes the Marxist vision in a new context. And so that, again, I even consider this, this to be, this is the most important actual observation about how Marxism changed through the 20th century. And it's a punchy little thing in terms of how this is race Marxism. But what we actually have, generally speaking here, though, as we have this this idea that the, the Marcuse noticed that the racial minorities, the sexual minorities, et cetera, but for, for our purposes today, especially the racial minorities, can, per, can picture themselves as the losers of capitalism. He can come out and say the working class stabilized itself, but there's a segment of the working class, the racial minorities, that isn't stable, that isn't getting equal access to the fruits of this stabilization that came through, uh, through so-called advanced capitalism. And so we can agitate them. We can get the conflict theory going across the, the color line, as W.E.B. Du Bois called it, you know, most of a century earlier. And that's really where this all comes from. This is ultimately where it comes from. If we can read in the Combahee River Collective, which was a bunch of black feminists 
who took up Marcuse's activism and they they tied to the Black Liberation Army activism that they were involved in. And the Black Liberation movement, as it turns out, was pretty patriarchal. In fact, a lot of the times, like Black Panthers and, and Black nationalists would make the women involved in their movement literally sit at their feet and be in a subservient position. And the Black feminists were like, no, especially the lesbians who were primarily the ones who created the Combahee River Collective. And in fact, Black Lives Matter later, uh, Black lesbians who created these things. And they were like, no. And in the Combahee River Collective Statement, which I've also read here on the podcast where I expose intersectionality, where it comes from and what it really is about, it is identity Marxism, by the way. In that statement, we have a very, very clear um not only articulation of Marxist vision for what's going on, but we also have a clear rejection by black feminism of black nationalism. But the energy that Marcuse was tapping into got channeled in that direction. And these were the theorists. This this thing that I'm talking about with Marcuse that I say is a punchy little thing in regard to the argument I want to make is the exit ramp. You think of two interstates crossing one another. You know, I don't know which ones. Maybe here in Knoxville, we have 40 and 75. And 75 runs north and south, 40 runs east and west. And they cross each other in Knoxville. And this happens all over the country. And there's huge exit ramps. You're you're trucking along on 75. You're coming north. You hit Knoxville. And if you want to go to Nashville, you've got to take a huge exit ramp and head west. This is what Marcuse produced, is a huge exit ramp. And the vast majority of the traffic of Marxism actually took the exit ramp, whereas the academics, bless their hearts, don't realize it. They don't see it. They think, nope, we're still heading up 75. No, most of Marxism took an exit ramp and is going a completely different direction in identity politics, but it's the exact same engine. And so that's what this podcast is about. Let's make really clear a few things about Marx, and then we're going to make the parallel to critical race theory, and you're going to see that critical race theory is reproduced virtually identically in uh, critical uh, Marx's vision, Marxism is reproduced virtually identically in critical race theory with the sole exception that we're taking. And I keep bringing up this one remark from Gloria Ladson Billings, an education critical race theorist from the nineties in a paper she wrote called toward a critical race theory of education in 1995. I think this is a key remark that the goal of critical race theory is to make, as she puts it, race, the central construct for understanding inequality. So in other words, we're going to, as they would phrase things, decenter class and center race. So now issues of class are going to be understood through the lens of race. And race becomes the central theoretical construct. It's the same conflict theory, but now race is the central construct for understanding the inequality, the differences in outcomes, rather than class. Class is not the key determinant thing. Material determinism is out. Structural determinism is in. This is the revolution that they had that created this off-ramp. And by 1995, when, when Gloria Ladson Billings is writing this, this deal is done. You know, we can take Marcuse's 1965-ish work you know, 64, 65, 69, pick whatever one you want. We're going to use 65 because 95, and it works out to a perfect 30 years. In that 30 years, this is the process of taking that exit ramp. By 1995, we're now heading west. We're no longer heading north and south. We're no longer talking about economic class. If you're talking about economic class, you're obscuring the role of race, and therefore you're a racist. You're obscuring the structural nature of race, therefore you're a racist. You're only doing so classical, vulgar Marxist because you're privileged, because you're white. And so now we're taking the exit ramp, 
and we're going to go on this new path. We can actually look, for example, by the way, look at Angela Davis. Angela Davis was Marcuse's student, black, lesbian, radical Marxist. She's integral in creating. She's, she's mentioned, for example, in Kimberly Crenshaw's Mapping the Margins, the key paper that outlines what intersectionality is about from 1991. She was instrumental in the Combahee River Collective coming together. Angela Davis is kind of, she's the inspiration. If you listen to the leaders of Black Lives Matter in many regards for the Black Lives Matter movement and its theory, she is a hardened unapologetic Marxist, always has been, always will be. Herbert Marcuse was the one who radicalized her. And what did she say about Marxism and about the Communist Party, which she ran for vice president three times or two times, two times. She ran for vice president on the Communist Party USA ticket. And what did she say about the Communist Party? She said that it was too conservative for her. It wasn't left enough because it wasn't focusing on the issue of race. It wasn't doing the hip thing. It didn't take the exit ramp. The Communist Party was too conservative for these people. It was too old, too boring, too dried up. So let's turn to Marx. Let's talk about Marx. So we can understand that critical race theory is in fact Marxism. So Marx had, I'm going to talk about a number of ideas of Marx, and I could talk about a lot of ideas of Marx, um, but I'm going to focus on just a few. One of these is Marx's, Marx's view of property. We're going to talk about how did Marx view property. And so I'll just read to you from the Communist Manifesto, Chapter 2. It's very clear what he says. The distinguishing feature of communism is not the abolition of property generally, but the abolition of bourgeois property. But modern bourgeois private property is the final and most complete expression of the system of producing and appropriating products. That is based on class antagonisms on the exploitation of the many by the few. In this sense, the theory of the communists, which we could really say is the faith of the communists, may be summed up in the single sentence, abolition of private property. Okay, so Marx distinguishes like the little trinkets that you have or the things that you actually make with your own labor out of nature in kind of pure Marxist theory, those can be yours. Those can be your property. You made that you shouldn't be divorced and alienated from it. And he's kind of clear about this. It's a kind of clear. Um, I don't know if you've read much Marx, but reading Marx is frustrating because it's self-contradictory bilge in most cases. But um, he has this idea that he's, the distinguishing feature of communism is not the abolition of property generally, but the abolition of bourgeois property. So he has this concept of the bourgeoisie. The bourgeoisie are the people who are in the so-called superstructure of society. They are the upper caste of society. They are the, what makes them in there? What is the magic thing that puts them there is capital. Capital is the concept of bourgeois property. It's not having stuff. It's capital. It's having stuff that you can then use to make profit. Okay. So and he, he says there's, this is bourgeois property, private bourgeois property, modern bourgeois private property, he says, is the final and most complete expression of the system of producing and appropriating products that is based on class antagonisms on the exploitation of the many by the few. And so his idea is that property that is, in a sense, capital is bad. And he says that communism can be summed up in a single sentence, which is not a sentence, abolition of private property, at least not a sentence as it's translated here into English. If it says abolish private property in German, then it is a sentence. 
but abolition of private property turns out not to have a verb in it. And so I like to point that out, but it could just be the translation, which I got, by the way, on Marxist.org, uh, if you want to know where I got it. So Marxists.org, you can find all kinds of great communist writing there for free. They put it all out there. They want people to read it. And so the distinguishing feature of communism, the theory of communism may be summed up in a single sentence, and it is the abolition of capital, aka bourgeois property, which you are not to accumulate. So property that you own, that you have some justification for through the so-called bourgeois values or the ideology, and we'll turn to ideology in a moment, that is the kind of property that has to be abolished. So, like I said, the key thing to understand is that Marx centering class over race, class antagonisms, Marx centering class in 1848 when he publishes, and for 1847 when he's writing the Communist Manifesto with Friedrich Engels, he calls bourgeois private property by the name capital, and capital is that which must be abolished. Critical race theory reproduces this idea exactly. The concept that has to be abolished, the bourgeois property is no longer material property. It's not capital. It's cultural capital. And in fact, it's illegitimate cultural capital. It is a kind that is based on class antagonisms. And the final and most complete expression, modern bourgeois racial property is the final and most complete expression of the system of white supremacy we could read, of producing and appropriating cultural products. And what we call that is whiteness. Whiteness is bourgeois property. When you understand that whiteness is the idea of bourgeois property in critical race theory, you understand that we're dealing with Marxism that centers race instead of class. Now, in 1993, we have a woman by the name of Cheryl Harris writes a paper. And in that paper, Cheryl Harris, the paper I should just tell you is titled Whiteness as Property. Whiteness as property is the title of the paper. So she's telling you that the way that critical race theory thinks about race is that there are things that are racial property. And she goes into, it's, it's a very long article, law review article, 60 something pages. And she goes into tremendous detail talking about how, uh, in fact, the the way that we conceive of property, property rights, etc., especially the so-called fundamental right to exclude, the way that we think about property in general translates into the way that whiteness operates in society almost perfectly. And that's the thesis that she has. She's characterizing whiteness as the private bourgeois property of critical race theory. Why on earth would you do that? Why on earth would you do that if you weren't recreating the Marxist theory of ab abolition of private property in the racial context? And then you think, well, maybe that I'm going too far. And I'm not, because we look at, say, Robin D'Angelo, who I mentioned briefly before. Um, what does she tell us at the end of White Fragility, for example, her most famous work? She tells us that the goal of studying whiteness, of what she's proposing, which is critical race theory, the goal is in fact to become less white, to recognize that there is no such thing as a positive white identity. This ties in exactly, if we look, for example, in, in uh, Cheryl Harris's paper, 
It's like I said, it's extremely long. It's over 60 pages long. In fact, no, actually, I'm looking at it now. It's 81 pages long. It's extraordinarily long. Oh, no, wait, sorry. That's just a conclusion. It's more than 81 pages long. So it's nearly 90 pages long. But if we look at like section, uh, what is this, four? The persistence of whiteness as property. This is just the table of contents for this extraordinarily long paper. And she says, you know, section A, the persistence of whiteness as valued social identity. In other words, as bourgeois racial property. Subordination through denial of group identity. Subjugation through affirmative action doctrine. And so she's trying to uh, characterize. I'm actually going to search to see if bourgeois appears in this paper at all. It does. Um, so I'll read from it here. No, it wasn't intending to do this. So what she's doing is making the case that whiteness is the racial bourgeois property that must be abolished. And we read Robin D'Angelo and you actually hear that. You actually hear that idea that there is no such thing as a positive white identity. So the goal is to become less white. This is the goal of anti-racism according to critical race theorists. This is race Marxism. So what is this? I'm just, I haven't even had a chance to read this because I'm obviously talking, but she's talking about in the paper here, uh, Cheryl Harris, page 1741. She's talking here about in the realm of social relations. So this is already Marxist. We'll talk a little bit about how Marx viewed social relations when we talk about structuralism, or I guess I can do that now. Marx, this is the shift actually from materialism to structure, uh, structuralism or whatever as well. The, the general idea that Marx had was that you have a productive infrastructure of society and a usurping superstructure of society, and that they're in dialectical opposition to one another, and they therefore create uh, the, the dialectical synthesis of their infrastructure and superstructure is the structure of society, which is like this web of forces that he called social relations that define who you are. Those are determined by your material conditions. Social relations are for pure old school, vulgar, as they call it, Marxism, um, defined in terms of your, your material conditions. And now they're de determined in terms of these structural, cultural conditions. But what the infrastructure and the superstructure actually do is they're in dialectical opposition. They create a structure and that structure is determinant of how things work in society under doctrines like material determinism and structural determinism is what they call them. So social relations are what the structure is composed of. You have the infrastructure in dialectical opposition with the superstructure that creates a structure. This is the theory of structuralism, by the way, which is a Marxist theory that developed a little later. Marx wasn't quite this explicit. He called the infrastructure the base. Um, later, it was called the, the infrastructure. Um, and so when you talk about the realm of social relations, this is what we're talking about. And this is what, what Harris says. In the realm of social relations, racial recognition in the United States is thus an act of race subordination. In the realm of legal relations, judicial definition of racial identity based on white supremacy reproduce that race subordination at the institutional level and transforming white to whiteness. The law masks the ideological content of racial definition, ideological content. We're going to talk about remarks and ideology in just a second. Uh, of racial definition and the exercise of power required to maintain it. It converted an abstract content concept into an entity. Um, and this has a footnote on it, so I want to check what that's actually referencing. Uh, Stephen J. Gould, the, uh, the Mismeasure of Man from 1981 is being cited there. That's being quoted there. And then she says, whiteness is racialized privilege. 
The material benefits of racial exclusion and subjugation functioned in the labor context to stifle class tensions among the whites. White workers perceived that they had more in common with the bourgeoisie than with fellow workers who were black. Thus, W.E.B. Du Bois's classic historical study of race and class, Black Reconstruction, noted that for the evolving white working class, race identification became crucial to the ways that it thought of itself and conceived of its interests. There were, he suggested, obvious material benefits, at least in the short term, to the decision of white workers to define themselves by their whiteness. Their wages far exceeded those of blacks and were high even in comparison with world standards. Moreover, even when the white working class did not collect increased pay as part of the white privilege, there were real advan- as, as part of white privilege, there were real advantages not paid in direct income. White, whiteness still yielded what Du Bois termed a public and psychological wage vital to white workers. And so this is the reproduction of Marxist theory. Exactly. Exactly. What do we have later on? She has here, uh, this is on page 1760. Um, It looks like this is in a footnote, uh, number 228. It says, social scientists have noted this. I'm just going to read all the places where bourgeois comes up. uh, Because I don't know exactly what I'm going to run into. It'll be fun. Social scientists have noted this phenomenon as part of the social dynamic of the white working class for some time. It, and it looks like this is a quote, but I'm not positive if it's a quote. It is through differential access to social institutions and political power that the bourgeoisie binds white workers to it in whiteness. So the bourgeoisie is created in white people by binding them to a concept of whiteness. Whiteness is bourgeois property. It is what That's what the point of this paper, whiteness as property, is. Let me read that again. It is through differential access to social institutions and political power that the bourgeoisie binds white workers to it in whiteness. To the extent that white workers identify with whiteness, a central component of Anglo-American bourgeois consciousness, and not with their proletarian status as workers, they will remain supporters and defenders of relative privileges for whites as extended by capital doesn't get a lot. It doesn't get much clearer than that, right? It doesn't get much clearer than that. What we have is a perfect reproduction of the black of, of Marx's uh, view of of bourgeois property in the paper "Whiteness as Property" by Cheryl Harris, where she characterizes whiteness. Now, her argument. This is in '93. The argument that she's making is that historically capitalists. This is a Marxist argument. Capitalists use the idea of whiteness to bind the working class, to give an ideology to the working class, to bind them to the concept of their whiteness so that they would hold themselves up and pretend, even if they're part of the working class, that they are part of the actual superstructure society, that they are in the elite. That's the central conspiracy theory of critical race theory, actually, is that The capitalists sold the idea to white people that they have something called whiteness that makes them better than the other races so that they will act. They will act like a racial bourgeoisie. They will actually support the bourgeoisie. They will be indoctrinated by the ideology of white supremacy. And so when you have this kind of very Marxist analysis, it's kind of very easy to see. All that happened was, this is 93, Ladson Billings tells us in 95 that we're now going to center race as the central construct for understanding inequality. We're not going to talk about what the capitalists, what the bourgeoisie are doing anymore. We're going to talk about what the white supremacists are actually doing to uphold capitalism instead of talking about what the capitalists are doing to uphold white supremacy. All you're doing is flipping that script. And through the early part of the 1990s, that was being completed to the point where we shift out of material determinism 
and we adopt the idea that whiteness itself is a form of property that must be abolished, Communi- the theory of communist of the communists may be summed up in the single sentence, abolition of private property. And then we, we translate this into the structural race realm where we center race in place of class. Race Marxism. It is race Marxism. The distinguishing feature of communism is not the abolition of property generally, but the abolition of bourgeois property. The distinguishing feature of critical race theory is not the abolition of racial property generally, but the abolition of whiteness. Why? Because blackness is a site of subjectivity. It is an anchor for the subjectivity and a site of a meaningful politic of identity. That's what Kimberly Crenshaw tells us, as we'll come back to later. Whiteness as property. Marx's view of property is reproduced in the racial realm by characterizing whiteness as a form of cultural property. And as a form of cultural property, it gives you access to capital as one of its many effects. But when we center race in place of class, we only care a little bit about how it gives you access to material capital. We care a lot more about how it gives you cultural and social standing, which is exactly what uh, Cheryl Harris tells us in this extremely long, ridiculous paper. So now we need to talk actually a little bit about Marx's view of ideology. I kind of already outlined this, but let me make it really clear. So there was, for Marx, there was the base and there is the superstructure. What are these things? This is how society operates in class relations, class antagonisms, because it's a conflict theory for Marx, as he saw it. What he sees is that there's this thing, there's nature and there are the people who do productive work on nature to build value. This is a very Hegelian idea. He actually said that this is one of the few things that Hegel got completely right. You have nature, nature provides, people do work on nature. Maybe they cut down a tree and fashion it into a picnic table or something. I don't know. They have nature provides, people do work on it. That creates value. The tree isn't all that valuable in and of itself, but when you turn it into a picnic table, it has utility and therefore it's valuable. And so people, unlike animals, for example, do productive work and create things out of nature. This cre- this combination of productive worker and nature, etc., is the base. This later gets called when we move into a structural situation and out of a uh, materialist condition will be called the infrastructure of society. This is what builds out society. The base builds out society. The infrastructure builds out society. Then you have these people who have figured out how to dominate other people. They figured out how to become managers. They're the bourgeoisie. They're the capitalists. They figured out how to accumulate capital to themselves and to get people to work for them. In the kind of Marxist theology, this productive work you're doing on nature allows you as a subject to understand yourself uh, through the objects that you manipulate as a creator. And so these people are actually creators who are making other people make their creation for them. So they're stealing their spiritual renewal. This is an important idea. So you have these people in the superstructure. You have lawyers, you have managers, you have priests, you have pastors, you have all these kinds of You have people like me that write books, people like Marx who are philosophers. You have all these people who don't do productive labor. They don't wield the sickle as farmers. They don't wield the hammer as workers. What do you read if you read Mao, if you read Lenin? We're going to have a farmers and a workers revolt. Marx says it too. We're going to have a government based on the farmers and the workers. Hammer and sickle. It's a religious symbol. And so then you have these people who are managing them. They collect, you know, somebody goes out with a hammer and bangs on things and builds things and they collect those things and sell those things and make profit and pay the worker some pittance that's not their fair share while alienating them from 
the product of their labor. Somebody goes out with a sickle and harvests the grain, and somebody collects all the grain and distributes the grain and sells the grain, and they make a profit off the grain, and they pay the farmer who goes out and does this. They buy the grain from him and, and, and rip him off of seeing himself as the person who created the food stock for the people. And they have these people that work in the superstructure, which are the capitalists, because they have access to capital, which is a bourgeois property. That is the, the, the money that they're making. The profit they're making is the bourgeois property. The things that they are appropriating by getting people to work for them. That's what Marx said. It's gathering, what was it? I have the exact phrasing here. The, it, the final and most complete expression of the system of producing and appropriating products. That's capital. The bourgeoisie have to justify for themselves. The capitalists have to justify, which are people who uphold the ideology that capital is the way to do economics, by the way. That's what a capitalist is. Capitalist was a word that Marx made up. This is a Marxist concept in and of itself. That There's this illegitimate form of product that basically is profit and private property and that that's capital that you can use to do what you want with and people marx didn't make up the word capital but what he did make up the word the word that he did make up is capitalist somebody who believes in an ideology that this is the way the world should work and this is what he says this is his view of ideology more generally and i get this actually from a critical race theorist charles mills who was documenting in a book called From Class to Race, his progression, his transformation from a classical Marxist or a vulgar Marxist to a race Marxist or critical race theorist. He's documenting in this book why this is. And the first chapter is about Marxist view of ideology. And he says everybody pretty much has misunderstood Marxist view of ideology. What he says is Marxist view of ideology, it's not a religion is an ideology or whatever. It is that the people in the superstructural positions of society, the capitalists, the bourgeoisie, have to create a web of rationalizations and, and basically a mythology, capitalism, explaining why they get to be in their positions, why we need managers, why we need lawyers, why we need philosophers, why we need writers, why we need priests, why we need pastors, why we need all these jobs, why society has to function this way. And they create all these different ideas like capitalism and like merit and meritocracy and all of these various ideas that justify why they get to be in the upper caste of society while the workers have to go do all the hard work and basically you just get paid a pittance for it while having all of what their work really represents at a spiritual level stolen from them. By the way, people ask me all the time, saying Marxism doesn't work, isn't good enough, it doesn't stop Marxism, it keeps coming back. Why? This is the answer. The answer is because Marxism answers spiritual questions for resentful people who aren't doing anything. It answers spiritual questions for people who are kind of doing jobs that they resent doing, who are not getting ahead in life, who see other people getting ahead, who they don't think deserve to get ahead, and it's answering those questions. There's supposed to be a spiritual renewal. through In Marxism, the idea is that our white macht frei in German, work makes you free. It makes you a free, independent man in himself who no longer has to depend on anything in the world. And so what you have is a bunch of people who are having that spiritual renewal stolen from them, that spiritual pathway, that ability to recognize themselves as a man in himself and a creator who produces for himself and his society, which are to become co-continuous when we have a full-blown communist utopia. That's being stolen by these people, and these people create a thing called an ideology, which is a gigantic mythology that justifies their supremacy. 
This is exactly what critical race theory says is how society operates. The fundamental operating principle of society, according to critical race theory, is racism created by white people for their own benefit. And this is when we shift, just like I talked about a moment ago, from class to race. When we center race as the construct for understanding all inequality, white supremacy becomes the overarching ideology, the mythology given for why People who have access to whiteness get to be in a racial upper class, and people who don't have access to whiteness don't. This is why, for example, you have things like cultural appropriation. White people are in this, they've created this, this they're in the upper caste of society, according to critical race theory. They've put themselves there illegitimately by the exploitation of other people through things like slavery, through things like where, uh, an example I like to give a lot because it's actually a hotter but an issue than you might think is where rock and roll was created by people like Elvis Presley by stealing the blues from blacks who were then left to just sing more blues but didn't become big icons. Of course, this is not what really happened. A lot of the blues, I mean, this did happen with Elvis Presley, but the blues became huge and we have huge blues icons like B.B. King, etc., who were well known for what they did. This is sort of preposterous, but this is the nature of a class antagonism theory, a class conflict theory, and that's what was being reproduced. So you have white people who are in, who are appropriating all of these things from the rest of the races of society because they have access to the cultural and material capital to become, say, record producers, to put out the big record, to create the show, to get people to show up. They have all this access. People trust them. People listen to them. They have all this cultural capital that people of color, as it were, don't. The, the racial proletariat is excluded from. And so they have to justify that. They have to explain why they get to be in this racial upper class, and they create a doctrine of white supremacy that shifts and changes and morphs over time, and a critical theory of race, critical race theory, is needed to see how it masks itself without ever actually getting rid of itself. Because for Marxists, the only way to get rid of an exploitative situation is to have a revolution, and Marx was very clear about that. So we have the People who have access to whiteness, who are by default most, if not all, white people, we just heard through Harris's description of how this came into being within capitalism. And then we have people that are granted access. The Irish and the Germans were not considered white at first, but according to Richard Delgado and Critical Race Theory and Introduction, they were told if they vote for the Democratic Party, we'll make you white. That's really in there. Um, it's kind of funny. Uh, I wish I had it open. I would read it to you specifically. But if you actually get a copy of the book and search for the word Democrat, it's, I think, the only mention of the word Democrat in the book. Um, sort of hilarious. And then, you know, Asians are going to be made white adjacent through the model minority program. And, you know, uh, Hispanics are going to believe themselves to be white or whatever and are going to be kind of in this racial netherworld. But there's this intrinsic class race antagonist racial class antagonism called anti-blackness baked into whiteness that keeps black people out and this is the central agitation racial agitation of critical race theory so white supremacy is an overarching ideology that upholds the primacy of whiteness as a form of cultural property that uh, cultural bourgeois property that only certain people get access to it is a perfect replication of Marx's class antagonism theory, his class conflict theory, where the racial dimension is now centered and the uh, class and material uh, aspects are decentered. So, do you see this? You have a racial superstructure, which is whiteness, 
and you have a racial infrastructure, which is people of color that are having their cultural products appropriated through cultural appropriation, for example. They're also being materially and culturally and socially and et cetera excluded, according to as we just read from Gloria or sorry, from from Cheryl Harris and whiteness as property is how whiteness functions as bourgeois property. And then the white people have to create this ideology that explains why this is the case. And the ones that they land on are things like white supremacy, which necessarily they give their justifications like I worked for my position. So meritocracy gets wrapped up inside of white supremacy. It's just reasonable. So rationality gets worked into white supremacy. The evidence supports. So empiricism gets wrapped up into white supremacy. This is the exact same thing the Marxists did where they thought that these were bourgeois sciences, the, the bourgeois sciences like physics, the bourgeois uh, rationality, etc. that everything that excluded the party, it is, it is, is bourgeois, uh, everything that excluded communist theory must have bourgeois values baked in and uh, bourgeois ideologies are keeping them out and they lie to themselves. They're, they're in, in critical race theory, they say that whiteness is a, is a race that becomes transparent. It can't be seen from within itself. And they always give that stupid example of the fish not knowing that they're in water, which is really dumb because you, I mean, even with air, all I have to do is flap my hand back and forth and I can feel the air. So it's like, it's not really, even though you can't see it, it's very obvious that there's something there. They're really stupid. Um, what they're, they're actually doing is reproducing this exact structure of thought centering race now in place of class. And it's super obvious when you understand what Marx thought of ideology. Ideology is the set of excuses, the grand mythology. This is, of course, also what is being talked about by the critical Marxists who are mostly skipping in this podcast when they write the dialectic of enlightenment in 1944 and rewrite in 47. That's Max Horkheimer and Theodore Adorno. Marcuse was kind of butthurt that he wasn't part of that project. Well, not too butthurt. He was busy doing other things. But the point was that they wanted to, the three of them actually together had intended to write the definitive explanation for why the Enlightenment project is a failure. And their claim is that it actually builds its own edifice of mythology. It creates its own bourgeois ideology that's basically rooted in things like science and rationality that in the end become irrational and mythological and justify nothing but their own dominance over everybody else. This just gets imported in critical race theory into white people saying that it's meritocracy, it's individualism, it's, you know, all of these different things, hard work, Protestant work ethic, whatever it happens to be, these are all part of the big racial ideology of white supremacy. And that's why you have documents from like the National uh, African-American History Museum from the Smithsonian telling us in, in all this educational crap about how math upholds white supremacy, punctuality upholds white supremacy, loyalty upholds white supremacy. These are all parts of white supremacy culture. These are the values that the existing society uses to work and that white people predominantly, by and large, used to justify why they get to be at the upper class of society while everybody else is at the lower class of society, why the superstructure gets to exist and continue to exploit the infrastructure. This is Marx's view of ideology, the set of rationalizations for why some people get to be successful and other people don't. Self-serving mythological justifications and everything that they use gets wrapped up into it. So in critical race theory, it's white supremacy. In Marxism, it's capitalism. Same thing. White supremacy is the capitalism of critical race theory. Capitalism is the overarching ideology given by people who are successful in, in the so-called capitalist 
structure, kind of using the word in both both senses here so you don't get lost, for why they get to be successful. Same, same, race Marxism. I'm telling you, it's race Marxism. So let's get a little deeper into this kind of like um, spiritual side of it, I guess. Uh, I touched on that. Marx's dialectic of subject and object is actually at the heart of this. And this is why you have W.E. Du Bois talking about double consciousness, where you have this issue of, it says that he's arguing, and this is in 1903 in, in The Souls of Black Folk, at the very beginning. He's arguing about black people having, by the imposition of racism, they have the imposition of racism upon them, they have a double consciousness. They understand themselves in his words, simultaneously as American and as Negro. And he's trying to say, how do you deal with both of these things? How do you deal with both of How can they have both of these consciousnesses and understand themselves? And now you have to understand that W.E.B. Du Bois was a rampant folkish nationalist after his time in Germany. He spent a couple of years in Germany, like 1894 through 1896, something like this, studying in the university, Humboldt University in Ber- Berlin, which is also where Marx was 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 educated, by the way. And I'm, if I'm not mistaken, but I might be wrong, it's where Marx's big hero Goethe was also um, educated. But I might be wrong about that. But the, about Goethe, but I would, I'm not about Marx, and I'm not about Du Bois, and. Uh, of course, it was at Goethe University, where the, Frank- the Frankfurt School, which was originally called the Institute for Marxism and changed to Institute for Social Research, which is the critical Marxist, the neo-Marxist. Goethe University is where the, the university after Goethe is, is where this came from. Goethe was uh, one of Marx's biggest heroes. And so this is beside the point, though. We're talking about Marx's dialectic of subject and object uh, and the double consciousness. So W.E. Du Bois has this idea of double consciousness. He's got a very folkish nationalist view. So if you're black, you actually belong to, in a sense, a imposed upon you racial nation that's characterized by blackness. And you have to wrestle with this fact that you have this imposed nationality thought of in a folkish sense in the, so, the way that it's spelled with a V, you know, like the German folk, meaning people, meaning, you know, like a nation. Um, you have this imposed upon you by the act of, by the, by the situation of racism, by the white supremacist ideology is how this is going to evolve into critical race theory. Although in 1903, uh, Du Bois was certainly not a Marxist. He was a Marxist. He became a Marxist later in the 1920s and 30s. He became a Marxist and he died a Marxist, but he was not a Marxist in 1903 when he wrote this. And so he's he's struggling with this idea of this double consciousness, though, and the Marxists are going to take this to an extreme later, uh, that you have the imposition of a racial uh, identity put onto you. And then he's, he's talking about how white people kind of don't have this, but they kind of do. He's another collection of essays that came out in 1920 called the souls of white folk that, uh, kind of dips into that a little bit. Um, but in particular, the, the white supremacy, which was real. And of course, 1903, the white supremacy is creating a double identity situation for, racial minorities in particular. He says in particular black people, but he's, he's kind of neglecting that the Chinese were not having a great time under uh, the racial laws of, of the era. Um, it was just a few years earlier um, that Plessy versus Ferguson, that's a separate but equal Supreme Court decision was made. It was like 1890-something. And uh, Harlan Weaver, it's in his famous defense, probably the or dissent, probably one of the most important race documents in American history is Harlan Weaver's dissent from the separate but equal decision in Plessy versus Ferguson. Uh, Weaver writes that 
it makes absolutely, he basically gives two arguments that Kimberly Crenshaw, we're going to hear this in a minute, reproduces sort of. Uh, he gives two arguments for why, actually, I don't know if I'm going to go that deep into Crenshaw, but he gives two arguments for why uh, race doesn't make sense and racism against blacks doesn't make sense. But then he also has to add, there's this other race that's so foreign to our our ways of being so alien to who we are. And I speak of the Chinese race that they certainly, I don't remember exactly how he phrases it. And I don't want to put words into his mouth, but it comes down to almost like they're not really people. Um, so, you know, this whole thing about, you know, this hyper-focus on the black thing, you can see where this kind of like grievance mentality creates a myopia that makes you fail to see what's going on more broadly because there's even more rampant and vigorous racism against the Chinese but this was also a product of white supremacy. So you have this ideology of white supremacy. This is actually in place. This is actually happening. We have not yet had civil rights movement. We have had abolition, um, but we have not had a civil rights movement. And so he's explaining this idea of double consciousness. And so this is where Marx's dialectic of subject and object comes into play. And this is actually really important. For Marx, what you have, and this is kind of the Marxist theology, is Rather than you being a person who responds to the objective world, the world is outside of you. It bring, you you gain gather sense information. It's a deep philosophy. This is a deep ontological question. So the world is outside of you. You gather sense information about the world and react to the world. So that's an objectivist point of view. For Marx is actually, I would say he's subjectivist, but that's not quite right because it's dialectical nonsense. For Marx, though, you are first a subject in the world. You create a vision of the world around you, and then you try to create that world. It's not that you, for, for people like Rousseau to a degree preceding Marx, and even more like William Blake, who inspired Marx, they were much more subjectivist. And as a matter of fact, Blake was almost wholly subjectivist. You create the world in your head. Basically, you're a brain in a vat. And you're it's not quite that extreme for him, but it's pretty close. And you are creating the world. The only real world is inside your consciousness. It's almost very Cartesian. You know, I think, therefore, I am. That's the first thing I don't know how to be skeptical of, according to, to Rene Descartes. Uh, these are the ontological questions of kind of the era. And for, for Blake, who is a rampant Gnostic uh, and a rampant fan of Rousseau and the Gnosticism that Rousseau was flirting with, the idea was really the subject comes first. And so Marx has this idea that the subject is a starting place. But what does the subject do is that a subject, as opposed to, say, a mere animal, creates a vision of the world that he wants to see, and then he can create it in the world. And so there, for Marx, adopting Hegel's dialectic thought, subject and object are in a dialectical relationship. You are a subject who creates an object, and through creating the object, you know yourself as a subject. So the subject-object as a single concept in relationship to one another, that's what the real nature of reality is. It's a complicated idea because it's frankly stupid. It's frankly, um, it's not totally stupid. I shouldn't be that uncharitable, but it's, 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 it's weird mystical kind of way to think about the fact that we can influence the world around us through our efforts and that we can imagine something and try to bring it into being or reimagine it endlessly reimagining in the revolution. And so there's this dialectical relationship between subject and object. You are a subject, you have a vision for the world, you see the world outside of yourself, but you only understand it within your consciousness. And then you try to bring into your consciousness, a vision for how you want the world to be. And then you make that into the world, which is actually out there. And he says, in fact, that man and mankind as a species both become the object of man's subjectivity. 
yeah, you can go listen to the theological Marx as a theology podcast and hear how he actually phrases that. And I think that's in a couple of his 1844 essays, uh, where he's really ra- laying down the kind of philosophical roots of this. And so what Marx says is that the nature of this class antagonism, the class conflict, is that you have the dominating bourgeoisie in the superstructure who are exploiting the proletariat. And what they're doing by doing so is that they're actually removing the subjectivity from the people who are the workers. You are no longer doing work for you according to your vision by which you can understand yourself to be a manipulator of worlds or creator of worlds. You are having that taken from you. You are doing work for somebody else according to their vision. The boss comes and the boss tells you, I want you to do X, Y, Z. I want it done by this time. I want you to create this vision for me, and I'm the one who's going to profit off of it, not you. You're going to be alienated from the the efforts of your work. I'm going to exploit you to do this, blah, blah, blah. And so the subject-object dialectic is disrupted for Marx by the existence of capital. And so what he says is that the goal then is to raise a consciousness which is, again, a spiritual concept, that this is what's really going on, that you're being exploited, that wages are just another form of slavery, wage slavery, he calls this. And so you have to awaken a class consciousness that this is the true nature of reality, which is this class antagonism, that, in fact, you could see yourself as a full, fully-fledged human subject. And by human, he means creative. And by creative, and this is why, by the way, in the, today's world with the Great Reset, in the Great Reset, you, the creative class will be in charge of all of these things. The creative class is being referenced, and then you're going to have the useless class alongside. Uh, so these creative class are the people who have been awakened to the right consciousness. Um, and the, 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 the machinations of capitalism for Marx are stealing the, ex- the class exploitation and a- the, thus alienation from your product and yourself because you are your own object as well. So is your fellow man is your object because you're trying to indoctrinate him in Marxism constantly. And so... All of these social relations become exploitative rather than harmonious and uh, um, co-productive, I guess, under the, the division of labor that comes from the ownership of private bourgeois property. And so your subjectivity is actually being stolen from you. And you have to be awakened to the fact that you are, in fact, a subject because the prevailing ideology is brainwashing you and the capitalists are exploiting and alienating you from your true consciousness as a class subject, as a person who is materially determined by your standing in these social relations where the infrastructure and superstructure are in dialectical relationship with one another. Okay. Critical race theory reproduces this exactly, not through class consciousness because it does not center class, it centers race as the central concept construct for understanding inequality. So it raises a racial consciousness. It raises the consciousness that, in fact, Elvis Presley stole the blues so that he could create rock and roll for his and all white people's benefit, but not for black people's benefit who've been exploited and been robbed of their cultural products. This is why we can't have tacos on Tuesdays anymore, because Taco Tuesday became like a thing that white people created around the idea of exploiting Mexican food. 
This is the way that they think about things. And you have to awaken people to the racial consciousness, their positionality in the intersectional hierarchy of how the social relations that are created by the interactions of the various dimensions of the superstructure versus infrastructure, whether that's racial superstructure, which is whiteness, whether that's um, the kind of sex, gender, sexuality, which is cis-heteronormativity, that's their superstructure. And then there are the, there's the infrastructure, which are the, the queers and who are creating, you know, true queer culture that's being appropriated by people who want to, you know, put gay people on TV and make a profit, make a profit, but they're desperate for representation. So they go along with it and get co-opted. That's the theory. It's a huge conspiracy theory. And then maybe it's whiteness and it's the people of color who are being exploited. And so you have to raise these consciousnesses. You have to raise the consciousness of people to the fact of what? Of class antagonism, whether that's material class antagonism, whether that's racial class antagonism, whether that's sex, gender, sexuality, class antagonism, etc. That's the point. And so making the proletarian, making the proletarian, making the worker actually realize that he's a proletarian, that he has class consciousness awakened and that worker solidarity is necessary and a worker's revolt that throw overthrows the government, but not like the truckers in Ottawa, because that's the wrong kind, because it's against the regime, the leftist regime. But I digress. Um, awakening that class consciousness becomes the key, the key spiritual project of Marxism. And so what do we read when we read Kimberly Crenshaw talking about intersectionality and critical race theory, and in particular about racial consciousness? And of course, critical race theory forwards racial consciousness constantly. Everything they talk about is how we have to be color conscious. We can't be color blind. We have to be color conscious. We can't have color blind admissions. We have to have race conscious admissions. Everything is race consciousness. And they're constantly through the 1619 Project, through the BLM, through everything they're doing, trying to raise awareness constantly, raise consciousness constantly of this class antagonism across racial lines. So we go back to Kimberly Crenshaw, who named critical race theory. She is the person who named it critical race theory. She was at the founding meeting in 1989. She was the student of Derrick Bell, and she and Derrick Bell are considered the two co-founders of critical race theory. And so she has this paper from 1991 called Mapping the Margins. They always see themselves on the margins. And the margins here are Women are at the margins of black liberationism and uh, the, the black people are at the margins of feminism. And so she says, that you know, this is why we need an intersectionality. That's the point of the paper. But she goes into this whole pion near the end where she, what she's actually doing is criticizing the idea of liberal or postmodern. Both of these. There are two means of deconstruction of uh things like racism. One is liberal, where we're no longer going to see race. And this is what um, Harlan Weaver brought up in his Plessy versus Ferguson. I'm going to read some of Crenshaw here, and it's actually the next paragraph where she goes into literally explaining these two. So she she's aware of them, and she cites Plessy versus Ferguson. So she knows that this is the, the grounding. But the liberal approach to dissolving, actually liberalism and postmodernism both approach by trying to dissolve race but then the other possibility is that you say that the racial category shouldn't have social significance. And she actually says that these are both impossible. That's her argument here. And so she says, this is quoting Kimberly Crenshaw from Mapping the Margins near the end, where she's criticizing both liberalism because she's a Marxist and postmodernism because she wants a more sophisticated woke Marxism rather than kind of postmodern despair Marxism. She says, it is important to note that identity constitutes sorry, continues to be a site of resistance for members of different subordinated groups. So 
identity continues to be a site of resistance through which they can understand themselves to be a subject, you'll hear in a moment, for members of different subordinated groups, for people in the, uh, in this case, racial or sexual uh, infrastructure, the subordinated class that has the ideology imposed upon it that keeps them subordinated. And um, I just want to point out briefly before I continue, because why I kind of got distracted reading through this, that her criticism specifically, by the way, of postmodernism and social constructivism, saying that race is a social construct, is that that's something that only white people could do. So she actually accused the uh, postmodernists of of racial privilege. And that's how the so-called, as Peterson, Jordan Peterson put it, the postmodern neo-Marxism came into being. I would call that woke Marxism, uh, or woke identity Marxism, if you want. That's where the identity Marxism went fully into this dialectical relationship with social constructivism, but also not through the, the, the idea that race is imposed and therefore uh, what the postmodernists saw as social constructivism, like the social construction of race, and therefore it's a, an illusion. Therefore, we don't have, we shouldn't have racism. What she's actually saying is, no, it's imposed. So we can't actually deconstruct it through a postmodern means or a liberal means. And so we have to live with it. And so what it's going to be, she says, is like, it continues to be a site of resistance for members of different subordinated groups. She says we can all, to elaborate, she says we can all recognize the distinctions between the claims, I am black, and the claim, I am a person who happens to be black. And the grammatical mistake there is hers. I am black, she tells us, takes the socially imposed identity and empowers it as an anchor of subjectivity. Marx's subject-object dialectic is being invoked here. Site of resistance for members of different subordinated groups, I am black, adopting the racial identity. Race consciousness becomes not simply a statement of resistance, but also a positive discourse of self-identification, she says, because it empowers the socially imposed identity as an anchor of subjectivity, a way that the person who is being exploited, who is having their subjectivity stolen by the class antagonism across the race line or the color line, the way that that socially imposed identity, just like W.E.B. Du Bois was grappling with 100 years earlier almost, or 90 years earlier, that socially imposed identity, that double consciousness, can be empowered as an anchor of subjectivity that gives the exploited person consciousness of themselves as a subject yet again. I am black, she says, becomes not simply a statement of resistance, but also a positive discourse of self-identification intimately linked to celebratory statements like the black nationalist black is beautiful. And now just to make sure I haven't exaggerated here, she continues, I am a person who happens to be black, on the other hand, achieve self-identification by straining for a certain universality. In effect, I am first a person. And for a concomitant dismissal of the imposed category black as contingent, circumstantial, and non-determinant. So the idea that I am first a person is not sufficient for her because there's an imposition of race that is not contingent, circumstantial, and non-determinant. It is, in fact, significant. It is, in fact, for her the anchor of subjectivity. It is how the class-exploited racial minority can understand him or herself, herself particularly for Crenshaw probably, as a subject who creates and in the objective world where that creation happens can come to know themselves. Through what? Through empowerment. 
through a meaningful politic of identity. So she sees the idea of straining for universality as ignoring the structural imposition of race and racism. Ignoring the fact that racism is a structural force, a Marxist concept. So the idea here for her is that there is a racial upper class that has access to whiteness that's imposing race so that other people will not have access to whiteness. And if we strain for a certain universality that says, in effect, I'm first a person, you dismiss the fact of the imposition of race. You dismiss the fact that power is creating this. And you therefore cannot understand yourself properly as a subject. And therefore you cannot have your racial consciousness become a meaningful site or sorry, a site for a meaningful politic of identity to try to stick to her phrasing as close as possible. She says there is truth in both characterizations, of course, but they function quite differently depending on the political context. At this point in history, a strong case can be made that the most critical <clears throat> critical resistance strategy for disempowered groups is to occupy and defend a politics of social location rather than to vacate and destroy it. This is her meaningful politics of identity that she's talking about, that we get to a meaningful politics of identity by raising a consciousness of people who see themselves as a racially exploited subject who, if they generate enough solidarity, this was the point of the paper at the beginning, she actually talks about how the you know disparate voices of a few don't have the same impact as the combined voices of many. So if they combine in solidarity through racial consciousness that your struggle is our struggle, as we phrased it in the fake Hitler paper that we wrote in the Grievance Studies Affair, that was the title, Your Struggle is Our Struggle, Intersectional Solidarity, something, something. So what she's saying is that you have to awaken this consciousness that race is the construct that's sent, uh, the identity, she says, actually, because this is intersectional. It's not about critical race theory. This is intersectionality. That identity is a anchor of subjectivity, a statement of resistance, a positive discourse of self-identification that leads to a meaningful politics of identity that starts from a politics of social location. That's Marxism. You have to understand yourself in the hierarchy of class antagonisms through race. And she says that the most fruitful, no, sorry, not the most fruitful, the most critical resistance strategy, critical theory, critical Marxism, the most critical resistance strategy for these exploited groups is to awaken that racial consciousness. Let that become their anchor of subjectivity, how they come to know themselves as a person and to realize that solidarity across that to awaken a racial consciousness in everybody and thus to change the, to, to have a complete racial revolution becomes the project. That's critical race theory. That's a reproduction of Marx's dialectic of subject and object. That's what it is. So race Marxism is the correct description for critical race theory. This is why it is race conscious. This is why it says that race, um, that the colorblindness is the key problem. And you know, critical race theory in introduction devotes a large number of pages to saying that colorblindness is the problem. Colorblindness reproduces inequalities. Robin D'Angelo in Is Everyone Really Equal, along with Uslam Sensoy, tells us that actually trying to be colorblind tricks racial minorities into thinking that they have more freedom and opportunity than social structures actually allow. That's in like page five of the first edition or something like that. So this is really 
race Marxism. It really, really is. But let's put this to use. What are you supposed to do with this race consciousness? And this is where Marxist historicism comes into play. Marx had a view of a six-stage process of history. The history has a purpose, and the purpose is to get to a society where where man and society are dialectically synthesized. You become not man separate from society, but man in society. You become socialist man. You become a man who understands that the true nature of manhood is being part of the collective, being part of the social order, and to erase class antagonism entirely by doing so. And the state will become... If for Marx, when we'll talk about it, I guess so there's six stages. The state will enforce this until it becomes spontaneous, and that's when you get to communism. That's Marx's historical trajectory. So he gives this analysis of history in six stages, and he says, in the, very, in the beginning, if you will, before the division of labor, before the idea of private property, you had primitive communism. You had tribes. Everybody in the tribe shared everything. The problem is that all the tribes were local, and all the tribes were estranged from one another, and the tribes were not working together, and the tribes... While they shared internally, whether communist internally, they were not communist outside of the tribe. You're you're going to very rapidly understand that, that you know we've in the say almost 200 years since Marx wrote there, 175 years since Marx wrote this stuff down, we figured out a little bit about how humans work, and part of how humans work is that we have a we do have a sense of of kind of communal sharing in uh, close knit family and friend structures. Uh, like a tribe. But when you start getting too far away, it breaks down really fast because it, it depends on intimately trusting those people. And we only have so much capacity to know people well enough to intimately trust them. And so anyway, he has this vision though, that these tribal, this tribal state can become universal. So this tribal communism at stage one could be global communism at stage six. That's Marxism in a nutshell. And then the other four stages in the middle are supposed to be the trajectory of how history, which is the history of social relations created by the division of labor and private property, are going to unfold to get us from primitive communism to global communism. Primitive, tribal, local communism. So you have these tribes and they're estranged from one another, but they are communist within, and then tribes start to dominate one another. They start to put the other tribes to work for them through military force, etc., and they create a second stage of history that amounts to a slave economy. Now, but eventually this gets reorganized into a third stage of history where slavery is abolished because it's considered a moral abomination. But there's this, you know, Lord-Surf relationship. We'll protect you. We'll make sure you have a place to live. We'll put up walls. We'll, 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 we'll basically provide for your security and safety, the Lord with his knights, so long as you do work for us on our plantation, more or less. The aristocracy has a big plot of land and we'll, we'll let you be our vassals and servants and, and farmers and so on. In return, we'll give you protection. And this is the arist aristocracy or the feudal estate system as a third stage of history. And eventually the serfs realize that they could do better with their own stuff, that they don't need to work they can actually, if we organize slightly differently and we create police and things like this, we don't actually need to have these lords with their knights trading security for exploitation. Uh, it's just another form of slavery, as everything is just another form of slavery for Marx until you get to communism. But maybe if you give people their own, and now you replace the 
the feudal aristocrat with the capitalist, with the manager, with the boss. But the but in essence, people do have their own stuff. They can work for their own stuff. They actually get paid a wage, which Marx saw as another form of slavery. And the fourth stage of history, capitalism, is one of buying and selling and trading and exchanging. And he says that this actually is still just as exploitative as slavery and as aristocracy. It's just the same thing in a new form. Sound familiar if you've read Critical Race Theory? Of course it does. And so he says that what's going to happen is that the workers have to be awakened to the class consciousness, that they've been deluded by thinking that they're free, that they've been deluded by thinking that they can build a better life through capitalism, but in fact they're being immiserated. This is Marxist idea, Marx's idea about how capitalism actually works, because it's wholly exploitative, it's taking people out of their subjectivity, it's, um, it's alienating them from themselves, from each other, from the products of their labor, and from their, their kind of spiritual root as a man who is independent of some system that's ripping him off. And so if you awaken that that class consciousness, which is the awareness that there's a class conflict, that the proletariat, that the workers should all be banding together to overthrow their masters who are their bosses, uh, who are the, the, the superstructural bourgeoisie of society. How? Through the abolition of private property. We already heard that will break down the division of labor. That'll end it. If we can get that, then the workers, the productive workers and farmers can create a new form of government that will redistribute everything equitably. And that form of government is called socialism. This is why, and I mean this 100% I don't compromise on this. There's no other meaning of the word outside of the realm of finance. Equity and socialism are the same thing. It is an administered state of affairs where uh, shares are adjusted so that people are made equal. And Marx envisioned, not in the Communist Manifesto, which he published in 1848, but by 19, or 1851 or three, I can't remember which one of his acolytes suggested, the only way that this can happen is through a dictatorship of the proletariat. The proletariat has to rise up, become a working, or a, an effective mass movement that will then the masses have to organize and then when the masses organize they're going to overthrow and seize the means of production when they take the means of production they're going to institute a dictatorship of the proletariat that will enforce socialism on everybody the idea for marx is that's the fifth stage of history socialism is that eventually socialism will be imposed as as herbert marcuse phrased it the values and and the the needs of it will be interjected into people till they don't know how to live without it and it'll eventually become spontaneous because man will be changing himself through this process remember man is a subject that creates the object but included within the object that he is creating is himself and the entire species and the society that he lives in so by forcing socialism on people man will be made into a new man and the new man will prefer to live understanding himself as a socialist man a man in favor of socialism a man in favor of who at the level of his so-called vital needs the level of his species being for marx needs this equitable redistribution by the dictatorship of the proletariat. And eventually the dictatorship will become redundant. It will wither away, he says. Marx says that the state will wither away when it becomes unnecessary and will enter finally into that sixth stage, which is a classless, stateless society that works functionally as a utopia, where what's happened is that the tribal communism of uh, the first stage of history is now reproduced at a global level, and they're very clear. It will not work unless it's global. 
everywhere has to be that or else exploitation and domination will still exist. It's basically the idea that if one country decides that it's not going to defend itself, some other country is going to come and stomp it to, de to death. But if all the countries decided that we're never going to go to war again, then you'd never have that problem. And again, this is a fundamental misunderstanding of human nature and the fact that somebody sooner or later is going to decide that they, some crazy person is going to start dominating people who won't defend themselves. It's a fundamental you know, oh, it's funny because Iron Law of Oak Projection never misses. It's an overemphasis on the belief that man can be perfectly rational and that never has, you know, that everybody is a perfectly rational being who can, you know, who never would, would put their self-interest above others. That there's no, say, psychopaths in the world or no people who are, are pathologically uh self-interested and he thinks that you can just kind of force this out of people but of course this is exactly the these are the megalomaniacs who take up this theory because it allows them absolute and total domination through inversion now what do we see in critical race theory if you read how critical race theory talks about indigeneity indigenous tribes if you read about how they talk about that they talk about how race wasn't an issue they talk about this in exactly the same language. The idea is that the indigenous tribes had racial justice. That's the term that they use. And, but the problem was that the tribes were estranged from one another. They had racial justice within, but they distrusted and went to war, sometimes for identity-based reasons. You're a tribe A, we're tribe B, and they go to war. This was rife throughout, they kind of paper over it, but it's rife throughout the North American continent that the Native Americans across the entire continent were constantly at war with one another, constantly enslaving one another, etc. They paper over the fact that this was happening between the tribes in Africa, for example. They were fighting with one another, they were enslaving one another. In fact, they were the ones primarily, at least at first, selling, and maybe throughout most of the slave trade, selling their captured uh, tribal compatriots or counterparts, I guess, enemies, that they conquered. They conquered, they conquered the other tribe and they sold the tribe into slavery to Europeans who wanted slaves to do their work because slavery had been a constant throughout all of human history. Marx has a very naive view of things and so do the critical race theorists. They paper over these things because it's very inconvenient to their narrative because they want it to be a very simple historicist vision put forth similar to the way that Marx did. So that you have this tribal racial justice. Inside the tribe, there's no race. There's no problem. You're either part of the tribe or you're not. And if you are, everything's good. doesn't matter what you look like. You're accepted, fully embraced, and everything gets shared. Nobody has higher cultural standing than anybody else except maybe the elders, which is a special you know, circumstance or whatever. And you could have this same perfect racial harmony at the end of history. If we can just get there, that's a stage six. But it has to be global. There's no global north, no global south, no black, no white, no different races. Nobody thinks in terms of racism or, or race or anything. We can, and is, the thing is, is, there's actually more truth to this than the crazy Marxist communism. But because they see all inequality through the racial lens, the communism's baked into the middle of it. So you're going to have to get to communism in order to have that. Uh, otherwise, somehow people are going to exploit. And when we make race central, any differences that come out is going to be explained as racism still existing in the world, even if it had nothing to do with racism, because that's what critical race theory does is it centers race as the explanation for everything that it thinks goes wrong in the world. Second stage of history, though, is these tribes that are estranged from one another, exactly what I just described, they start conquering one another and enslaving one another. And eventually through primarily, but not exclusively, the slave trade that took place in Europe with primarily Africans that were selling off other tribes that they conquered in their continual tribal warfare. 
the an ideology had to be born, white supremacy, that said, well, we have a justification. These Africans were inferior to us Europeans, and this kind of very snobbish, uh, as my, a Kenyan friend of mine called it, the mistake of 1650 uh, was made and justified that white people are intrinsically superior to black people, and white supremacy was actually born as a legitimate, not legitimate, sorry, as a, as a I'm trying to think of the right word, um, as a... Uh, is a broadly accepted, as is the word I really should look for here, um, ideology for why the world is the way that it is, why it's justifiable to colonize Africa, why it's justifiable to colonize South Asia, why it's in East Asia, why it's justifiable to colonize the New World, the Native Americans, why it's justifiable to colonize Australia, why it's justifiable to enslave these captured and sold Africans. And so you enter into a racial slave economy as a second stage of racial history. This third, this stage, eventually, we abolish slavery in the United States through a tremendously bloody war where 360,000 white people died, most of whom were probably racists, so that black people wouldn't be enslaved because they saw slavery as a moral abomination. And you enter into an apartheid state, and that's what characterized the mid-19th century, or most of the 19th century, into the mid-20th century, through most of what we would refer to as the developed world, was an apartheid state, a racial apartheid state where... You had basically separate but equal where the equal was a lie. Separate and unequal was really the deal. You had an upper class, an aristocracy who had access to the better parts of society and thus whiteness. become It's no longer just white supremacy. You now have this weird cultural property called whiteness that certain people have access to and they're, they're racial aristocrats and they offer you know, some measure, you know, we'll pay you for your blues, but not very much. We're going to go get rich off of rock and roll. They offer some kind of a kind of a tiered society. Yeah, you can use a water fountain, but not ours. And we end up with a racially segregated, racial apartheid state, Jim Crow laws, etc., where there is definitely a racial aristocracy that has access to whiteness and uh, a racial lower class that doesn't. And then you see rampant competition, whether it's the Irish, whether it's the Germans, whether it's the Italians, whether it's the Jews, whatever, according to critical race theory, all scrambling to throw everybody else under the bus to get access to whiteness, to become part of the racial bourgeoisie, to gain access to racial bourgeois property. And this is the uh, third stage of sordid third stage of history in critical race theory. And then we have a civil rights movement and we enter into, as Martin Luther King had it, colorblind equality. We've lived up to the promise all men are created equal in the Declaration of Independence. We started trying to make good on, as he phrased it, the promissory note that was written in the Constitution, just like Frederick Douglass before him supported the Constitution and the founders and their genius and the vision uh, that they believed that slavery, for example, would wither away within a generation, but they they were wrong. They, they didn't put, they didn't do enough to, to stop it in their time, and maybe they couldn't, I don't know. But the Civil War came and the Civil War ended slavery and eventually a civil rights movement comes almost a hundred years later to 98 years later, I think is when the I have a dream speech versus when the 13th, 14th and 15th amendments were put into power or put into effect. Um, this promissory note gets signed. We enter into a colorblind equality and just like the way that Marx viewed capitalism, the critical race theorists view colorblind equality. It's identical. Capitalism the idea that you can own your own stuff and make your own life and take your stuff and turn it into a pile of money, aka capital, and use that to turn it into a bigger pile of money if you want. Um, same thing is going on with colorblind equality, that you are in effect first a person and that you get to be a person first. That, they tell us, masks 
inequality. It masks the idea that it is, D'Angelo puts it, and is everyone really equal? By the way, the answer to that question is no. For them, she says that it, it creates conditions in which racial minorities believe that they have more opportunity and freedom than societal structures actually allow. Societal structures. Why? Because structuralism, because the, the social relations created by the racial infrastructure and a racial superstructure. In other words, white supremacy has survived. Whiteness has survived. Racism as a structural force has also therefore survived. It's just become milder and harder to see, necessitating a critical theory of race. And what do we get? Well, there could be a fifth stage of history called racial equity that would follow this. It's a perfect parallel to socialism. And if that is run long enough until it becomes spontaneous, then we could get finally at the long end of history, racial justice, which is the tantamount, or which is the parallel to communism. And how do you know, that, uh, how is this going to happen? Well, you're going to have a class of people that are like the awakened proletariats who have their class consciousness awakened. These people will be called the anti-racists who have their race consciousness awakened through critical race theory. In other words, are critical race theorists who have their race consciousness awakened, who will seize the means of cultural and social production and maybe material production to a certain degree and redistribute to make sure that the racial outcomes are equitable. And you know this is what they're doing. Let me read to you from the Communist Manifesto Chapter 2 yet again. Uh, so you know what the goal of communism was. He says, Marx and Engels say, as they say, the immediate aim of the communists is the same as that of all other proletarian parties. Formation of the proletariat into a class, overthrow of the bourgeois supremacy, conquest of political power by the proletariat. Okay? Now imagine that I take the words and change them into the phrasing where we center race, the critical race theory demands. The immediate aim of the critical race theorists is the same as that of all other anti-racist parties. Formation of the anti-racists into a class, overthrow of whiteness and white supremacy, conquest of political power by the anti-racists. You think, well, that sounds pretty extreme. I don't think that's really what they're doing, but we can read from Ibram Kendi. We can read from Ibram Kendi. 2019, Ibram Kendi was asked to answer for Politico magazine, How to Fix Inequality, and he says, to quote him in full, the whole paragraph, to fix the original sin of racism, Americans should pass an anti-racist amendment to the U.S. Constitution that enshrines two guiding anti-racist principles. And I always point out here he misspelled principles. But before I continue what these principles are, anti-racist amendment to the U.S. Constitution. What does that imply? What is that? And I know I've done this a million times before, and I know you've probably heard it from me. The Constitution is, in a constitutional republic, the ultimate law of the land. All other laws are subject to constitutionality. So the Constitution fully amended is the fundamental base law of the entire country. So anything that's in a constitutional amendment becomes the basis for all of American law. Now it's going to enshrine what? Two guiding anti-racist principles. Racial inequity is evidence of racist policy. In other words, we're going to center race, uh, sorry, racism as the uh, central construct for understanding all inequality. And the different racial groups are equals. Now, pause here for a second. I don't think they're that the Democrats, for example, are likely to get this anti-racist constitutional amendment. It's hard to amend the U.S. Constitution, and I don't think very many of our Republican-bent uh, states are going to go along with this idea. The idea that we would say that racial inequity is evidence of racist policy, in other words, that we're going to give the answer—you see something happen, and the Constitution is going to tell you what the answer is, that it was must be discrimination, um, is probably— 
uh, that it's racism is the problem, uh, it's probably not going to happen. But currently, if you look, Congress is trying to pass exactly this same thing in a lower form. The Democrats in Congress are trying to pass with $70 billion behind it, exactly this program to create a cabinet level position that would, would, would replicate this program that would have many, not all of the same powers that it would have if it were fully constitutional. So they're trying to do a partial third way stepping stone to create this through Congress legislatively right now to create a new cabinet level position for anti-racism, which I assure you will see racial inequity as evidence of racist policy which is one of the two principles that Kendi is saying must be enshrined in our constitution, the fundamental law of our land. He goes on to explain, the amendment would make unconstitutional racial inequity over a certain threshold as well as racist ideas by public officials. It would establish and permanently fund the Department of Anti-Racism, DOA, one might assume that's a cabinet-level position, comprised of formally trained experts on racism and no political appointees. So in other words, critical race theorists are going to staff this permanently funded, permanently funded Department of Anti-Racism, DOA, that is going to make unconstitutional racial inequity differences in outcomes on average over certain thresholds, which will be low, as well as race, as well as racist ideas by public officials. So you can't even have, you, you have no freedom of thought there. What will this DOA, Department of Anti-Racism, dictatorship of the anti-racists, it really should be going, what, what will it do? The DOA would be responsible for pre-clearing all local, state, and federal public policies to ensure they won't yield racial inequity. So it has absolute authority over laws on every single possible level in the country, local, state, and federal. That's a dictatorship. It will monitor those policies, investigate private racist policies on racial inequity surfaces. So even your private business or your private affairs are now going to be investigated uh, if they deem that they were not sufficiently anti-racist and monitor public officials for expressions of racist ideas. The DOA would be empowered with disciplinary tools to wield over and against policymakers and public officials who do not voluntarily change their racist policies and ideas. This is a dictatorship of the anti-racists in direct parallel to the dictatorship of the proletariat. The goal for Marx was to create a dictatorship of the proletariat who, as he said, formation of the proletariat into a class, overthrow the bourgeois supremacy and conquest of political power by the proletariat into a dictatorship of the proletariat that will usher in socialism that will eventually become spontaneous and become communism. And here we have Kendi in the exact words, racial inequity is the problem. He's going to create, if he can, either a department of anti-racism, a cabinet level position, a constitutional amendment, whatever it is, then the goal will be to hire critical race theorists to have responsibility for pre-clearing all local, state, and federal public policies. In other words, conquest of political power by the anti-racists, in Marx's words, by the formation of the anti-racists into a class, the overthrow of white supremacy, and the conquest of political power by the anti-racists. And it's also going to affect private expressions, private policy, in other words, how your company operates. But if you read Kendi's How to Be an Anti-Racist, policy has everything down to the kind of norms, the social norms of how you and I might discuss with one another. And so... Kendi is absolutely clear. We often hold him up for being as literally stupid as he is. He is as dumb as a box of rocks, but he's not so stupid that he couldn't reproduce Marx's vision from the Communist Manifesto in racial tones in a way that nobody noticed and published it in Politico magazine in 2019. 
because the goal will be to institute a department of anti-racism that will enforce racial equity as a fifth stage of racial history that is in perfect parallel to socialism that, as they tell us, will eventually become spontaneous long down the road after a long time of accountability and equity. People will just live that way. The values will have been interjected into us in Marcusean language, and we will enter into racial justice finally at last. So this is the vision. This is race Marxism. Critical race theory is just a repackaging of Marxism with race as the central construct for understanding inequality in place of class. It's, I mean, if this is, I guess, the book I should have written, QED. Um, just to kind of wrap up now, I'm going to read a little bit more from Marx. This is also from Chapter 2 of the Communist Manifesto. I'm going to read, and this doesn't feel terribly connected, but I want to give you this, this little set of paragraphs. It's about a page long to make it really clear to you that they fully intend what they say. In fact, that's exactly how Marx ends. It says, in bourgeois society, living labor is but a means to increase accumulated labor. In communist society, accumulated labor is but a means to widen, to enrich, to promote the existence of the laborer. In bourgeois society, therefore, the past dominates the present. In communist society, the present dominates the past. And that's all real. That's a loaded little paragraph, isn't it? And so again, in whiteness, whatever living labor translates into is but a means to increase accumulated labor. In racial justice, accumulated labor is but a means to widen, enrich, and promote the existence of the racial minority. So it's just an anti-whiteness anti -whiteness program is how that would translate. I know I didn't do that very well, but I'm not trying that hard. In bourgeois society, in whiteness society, therefore the past dominates the present. We have to care what the past actually was. But in an anti-racist or racial justice communist society, the present dominates the past. In other words, we're going to rewrite history in order to make it say what we need to say to do what we're doing. 1619 Project. Back to Marx. I don't want to keep doing that that way. In bourgeois society, he says capital is independent and has individuality. While the living person is dependent and has no individuality. So now we know what he means by living labor. The living person is the proletariat. In bourgeois society, the capital is independent and has individuality. So this is exactly what you see in critical race theory. Under whiteness, white people are independent and have individuality, while people of color are dependent and have no individuality because they have race imposed upon them. That's Crenshaw's point. How do they get out of that? By taking I am black as an anchor for subjectivity in the sight of a meaningful politic of identity. Back to Marx. I said I didn't want to keep doing that, but I am. So uh, let me just start with that sentence again. In bourgeois society, capital is independent and has individuality, while the living person is dependent and has no individuality. And the abolition of this state of things is called, by the bourgeois, abolition of individuality and freedom. If you replace white or bourgeois with white, this is exactly the argument they're making from critical race theory. The abolition of the state of things, white supremacy, is called by the white supremacists, people who have access to whiteness or white privilege, abolition of individuality and freedom. And rightly so, Marx says, because that's what he's saying is that is their goal, the abolition of individuality and freedom. The abolition, he says, of bourgeois individuality, bourgeois independence, and bourgeois freedom is undoubtedly aimed at. That's the goal of communism. By freedom is meant under the present bourgeois conditions of production, free trade, free selling and buying. But if selling and buying disappears, free selling and buying disappears also. 
This talk about free selling and buying and all the other brave words of our bourgeois about freedom in general have a meaning, if any, only in contrast with restricted selling and buying with the fettered traders of the Middle Ages, but have no meaning when opposed to the communistic abolition of buying and selling, of the bourgeois conditions of production, and of the bourgeoisie itself. The communistic abolition of buying and selling of the bourgeois conditions of production and the bourgeoisie itself. So they're talking about a complete revolution in the world order. So we could do this all again in terms, it's about, you know, production, trade, buying and selling. We could do this all again in terms of social relations, race relations, if you want. I hate that phrase. And we could, we could talk about that in terms of saying that it has no meaning when we get to racial justice. When opposed to the racial justice abolition of all of these things to do with race, of the bourgeois conditions of production, of, of, of the dominance of whiteness, and of the bourgeoisie itself. So the abolition of the class of people who have access to whiteness. Marx says, you are horrified at our intended, mm-hmm. speaking to the bourgeoisie, I guess, you are horrified at our intending to do away with private property, but in your existing society, private property is already done away with for nine-tenths of the population. Its existence for the few is solely due to its non-existence in the hands of those nine-tenths. We can turn, it's so easy to see that that's what critical race theory says. You are horrified at our intending to abolish whiteness, but in your existing society, whiteness is already done away with for nine-tenths of the population. Its existence for the few is solely due to its non-existence in the hands of those racial minorities who are the majority, the minoritized races of the world. Of the world, You reproach us, Mark says, therefore, with intending to do, do away with a form of property, the necessary condition for whose existence is the non-existence of any property for the immense majority of society. You reproach us, therefore, with the intending to do away with a form of property called whiteness. The necessary condition for whose existence is the non-existence of whiteness for the immense majority of society. It's perfect. It's not even shoehorned. It's perfect. That's actually Cheryl Harris's argument, if we go back to whiteness as property, about the key feature of whiteness as a form of property is the fundamental right to exclude other people from access to whiteness, which is the fundamental idea of bourgeois private property, is that you can exclude people from it. If it's your house, you don't have to let some squatter live in it. You don't have to let some greasy moocher like Marx come appropriate your your house and make a mess of it. You don't have to pay him like Engels and his mom and his dad and his wife's parents and everybody else he mooched off of did. You don't have to do that. You reproach us, he says, therefore, with intending to do away with a form of property, we could say called whiteness, the necessary condition for whose existence is the exclusion of access to whiteness for the immense majority of society. Is it a perfect fit? It is critical race theory just rewrites the communist manifesto using race as the central construct for understanding inequality, which is why I keep going back to that quote from Gloria Ladson Billings. To finish, Marx and Engels write, in one word, you reproach us with intending to do away with your property. Precisely so. That is just what we intend. And you hear it in Robin D'Angelo where she says there's no such thing as a positive white identity. So your ambition under critical race theory, under becoming anti-racist, must be to become less white. You hear it when they say to abolish whiteness. You hear it everywhere. 
Critical race theory is race Marxism. I didn't do this in the book Race Marxism because I was actually writing a book. I didn't intend to call it Race Marxism at first. I intended to call it the Critical Race, the New Discourses Guide to Critical Race Theory was the original working title. And I just wanted to peel back the onion of what critical race theory actually is. So here is the argument then. If I'm going to criticize my own book, literally in the week that it published it, the title maybe doesn't fit perfectly. There's the argument for race Marxism. Critical race theory is race Marxism. If you want a book that says it in exactly those words, here you go. Print the transcript. Now you have a book that says it in exactly those words. There's the argument. Critical race theory is race Marxism. Thank you for listening to this exciting episode of the New Discourses podcast. I hope you understand what critical race theory is even better. I hope even though this is not the argument given in the book, although I touch upon all of these points in chapter four in particular where I dip in and out of Marx, I hope that you, and in chapters one and two actually, I hope that you'll pick up the book. I hope that you'll read it. It's 100,000 words. It quotes extensively from all the relevant people. It also tries to document how um, Marxism changed the 20th century. And then again, at the very end of the 20th century into the 21st century, to go from being Marxism, we can do the whole little progression again, to cultural Marxism, to critical Marxism, to identity Marxism, to woke Marxism that we are dealing with now. And this is just a dialectical unfolding of Marxism. Critical race theory is the racial component, the one that centers race as the central construct for understanding inequality, as opposed to, say, queer and gender theory, which center sex, gender, and sexuality as a central construct for understanding inequality, as opposed to so-called vulgar old school Marxism that centers class, economic class, and material conditions as a central construct for understanding inequality. Critical race theory is race Marxism within the umbrella of woke Marxism. QED. It's done. That's what it is. It's Marxism. And so everything that Marxism comes with, all the calamity, all the catastrophe, all the inversion, all the division, all the hate, all the misery is waiting for us if we don't push race Marxism, aka critical race theory, out of our society and get it out of every position of power that it occupies, especially our schools, by every legal means.